HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hi guys, I'm Jamie Oliver and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. How amazing. For the past decade, they've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and so much more. It's been 10 years, and they're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. To the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Stephen Bitteroff. We'll talk to Stephen about Riesling Fire, Von Bowden. We'll talk to him about his love for Teutonic wines and more. For our weekly wine sip, I don't know what the hell we're going to taste. Stephen brought in a bag of wine, so we'll drink through that during the show. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. All right, hailing from Pennsylvania, Stephen Bitteroff left New York to study art, eventually becoming an artist, true. Uh, his love and interest in wine brought him from art to wine, working in retail and ultimately wine importation. Stephen is the creator of Riesling Fire, a celebration of Riesling, and the proprietor of Von Boden, a boutique wine import company specializing in German wines, among others. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Stephen. Thank you, Sam. Good to be here, man. Great to have you. Um, I think the best way for our audience to get to know you is for you to give us a little background, as I ask all my guests, mm -hmm. about your journey in life and wine that got you to really where you are today, which is throwing this great Riesling Fair and your boutique importation company. 
but it was an interesting road. So Yeah, it was not direct. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. So well, how did it start? I mean, any journey in, in wine starts with drinking right. a lot. Drinking probably too much. Uh, but it, before that, so I came, I didn't, you, I think you mentioned the intro. I left New York to study, to study, or I came to New York. You came to yeah, New York. Yeah, so basically I went, I, uh, I grew up for the most part in Pittsburgh. Okay. And then after that, went to Penn State. Sorry to, about the Steelers. Yeah, uh, you know, honestly, I, I don't follow sports at all. So Good. I went to Penn State, okay. which is a huge football town and big. never went to a game. <laughs> Studied art history. I mean, you know. It was There's like a, why. <laughs> yeah, dude. I wore, you know, it's like I wore a lot of black and uh, didn't go to didn't go to any of that shit. Can I swear or no? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then uh, studied art history. The plan, so far as I had a plan, was to get my PhD in art history. Uh, I went to Chicago. I did an internship at the Art Institute of Chicago. I came to New York specifically to study contemporary German painting with one very specific professor. He said no. And then I like, <laughs> I kind of didn't know it. Like, like my, the plan had been like A to B to C to D. You know, it's like it was all very well laid out, at least in my head. And then when that happened, I didn't know what the hell to do because I was in New York. I was waiting on tables. The plan was in the fall to do that. And then the door was closed there. So, boom. That was it, huh? So I was, at the same time I was drawing, I was doing pretty big drawings. Uh, Always drawing or kind of started? Yeah, I've been, I'd never in my life and still haven't ever taken a studio art class, so I don't have any formal training whatsoever. But I was doing big drawings and a lot, you know, it's like, I come from a kind of middle class Pittsburgh family, right? as did Andy Warhol, I guess. But it was like <laughs> art as a career was not, it just wasn't something people talked about ever, right? So it seemed it seemed incomprehensible and improbable. So yeah, I was doing big drawings. I had a room full of them, but never honestly did I ever think of selling them or that that would be anything feasible or possible. But then people started buying them. How? I uh, mean, are they friends? You know, it's or? like, yeah, you hang out with people in New York, you know, you meet some people who are collectors. I was very into, I was in that world, right? So you meet people at openings, you go to studios, that sort of shit. And I wasn't making that much, um, that much work. So yeah, I started selling it and then I got a gallery and then it kind of... It a just gallery sort of, to represent? I had a gallery, yeah. I had a gallery in New York and one in London. Um, cool. And sold it, you know, I don't know, I sold some work, you know, I could like pay the bills for a little bit with that shit. Really? Yeah, for a few years. And then I got through that, I got very, I was already into wine, I was waiting on tables, it was all part of like the world, and doing it on the cheap, I know this sounds like very fancy, but it was, you know, it was but a hand- go back for a second, go I ahead. mean, no, uh, no family influence on wine, no around the table stuff, or, or was it any of that? Was New York the place where you were exposed to it, working tables, and it being around? Yeah, I would say kind of 100%. My, interesting that my father's from Austria. <laughs> So my father's Austrian, uh, and presumably, we didn't really speak about it that much, but presumably drank a lot of white wine growing up. And so when he came to the U.S., he fell in love with, like, really powerful red wines. So certainly wine was a part of, like, the dinner table, but not in a, neither in a connoisseur, in a way of connoisseurship. Right. So he wouldn't, you know, present to me a Burgundy. More of a compliment. Just, yeah, it was like, there was always wine on the table and it was like right. if you wanted a slug you got it but it was not a formal thing my father drank magnums that were ten dollars and less and like like the shiraz right it was just right. you know, that was <laughs> i think i think after being raised in austria in the 50s and 60s and having a lot of really insipid white wines like wanted some alcohol and fruit and there it goes so I, here's the part i don't get i mean your whole life is about wine i mean 
what was that moment? I mean, you know, we didn't finish the art thing. I mean, you yeah. had a gallery represent you, you're drinking. When was the moment where you knew wine, like, this is cool or I never had this? Was it a specific wine? Was it a time? I mean, why and when? Yeah. No, there's no specific. There's no, like, you know. It was a moment. 19, Sam, it was a 1961 right. Palmer. No. It was, <laughs> I mean, I would say it was probably a German Riesling, you know, or German wines back in the... Right. That were just that that changed how I perceived what you could experience through wine. Insofar as they had residual sugar, they had so much acidity. There was this like this yin yang. And you're making sense of all of this back then. We're thinking no. a little about it. I was registering it as a really like phenomenal experience. Well, register is right? a yeah, fair word. Exactly. Too. Yeah. All right. So the art thing is you know gallery representation, selling a little. You know, get me to the transitions now. The wine and you know. Keep going. Yes. Okay. So the short story, because this would be a very long story. Okay. The short version is basically that the gallery world, I was successful <clears throat> enough to like keep the lights on and you know have kind of cup of noodles, but was not wildly successful or even was really not even that successful. Okay. All right. Let's put this in context. Uh, and got more and more into wine. Felt like it just seemed more interesting. And to be honest, now looking back, there's some logic to it. Right. I get more into wine. And I got more into wine, both from the tasting. I was drinking and buying a lot, right? And collecting on a very humble level. Like, you know, I'd have a case of wine around. I would be very conscientious of what I was drinking, interested in this wine or that. They might be a $5, $10, $15 bottle of wine, but I was interested in where it came from, who was making it, right? So collecting on that more cerebral level, yeah. yeah. Uh, and was interested in where they came from and, like, why wines from Germany were different than Italy, different than Spain, different from France. I was interested in the geography. I was interested in the history of it. I was interested in the language. And that is kind of like, that is what I did in art history. That is art history, right? right. And to some extent, whether you're, whether you're studying a painting or a sculpture from Italy or from France or from Germany or a wine... They all t- they're cultural products, right? And so it kind of filled, more than people know. Yeah, for sure, right? This is there's a reason Italian wine tastes different than German wine. There's a reason that the German Renaissance looks different than the Italian Renaissance, right? They're just these are cult- cultural artifacts, and that was the fascination that would drew me in. And looking back, it's like, yeah, man, I just threw out art history and brought in wine, because it's a similar thing. You get to travel, you get to work on language, you get to work on history, you get to work on geography. Those are all the same things, and. So how you, you can make, drink? How'd you, you make know? that a vocation? Uh, so that was a lot of good time, uh, good timing, lucky timing, right? It's the moment I got into it was the kind of, let's say, the early two thousands, and it was a time when wine was, uh, how do you say, like was fatiguing from the Robert Parker kind of world, right? So you know, for people who are not knee deep in this or not inside baseball. There was a time when wine was made, then there was a time where Robert Parker kind of ruled the roost, and it was the first time, perhaps, that there was a kind of stylistic unity, where the market identified, okay, people like high alcohol, or they like more sugar, or they like new wood, or whatever these things are, right? Uh, And it was a time when that was, and so people clamored around that, and frankly, you know, it's easy to bash Parker and what he did in his simplifying, but it's also like, you know, it was a way of bringing it into millions of households, right? That is, to some extent, fueled where we are today, where True. we can talk about small production, dorky it's a wine. Good peripheral point. Yeah, it's, you know, it's like there's always a flip side, right? So it was a time when that narrative was beginning to break apart, and so I got lucky and went to, you know, 
I wanted, I was basically getting very serious about wine and was kind of doing it all on my own and felt like at this point I was doing art. I was doing a bunch of other weird freelance shit. And I said, you know what? If I can work one or two days a week at a wine store, like make enough to, you know, make enough to just kind of like pay for my time there. But, you know, I'm doing other things. That's really the where I make my bread. But I can buy wine at cost and I can meet other people into wine. And so it was very much just like I'm going to meet people, hang out, buy some more wine. And it just was a good time. And so I was able to communicate. I'm a decent writer. I was able to kind of work on an email program and to do a little bit more digital marketing, which was at the that time a kind of new idea. Right. And to do it outside of the rubric. That was the big breakthrough. It was kind of doing this is not, I'm not taking ownership of this. I was a part of a group that did this. But it was breaking away from the Parker thing and not, you know, it's hard to think now, about. clear up something for yeah. me. Is this something you were doing on your own or you're already working somewhere doing this? So I... So this was the transition moment where I was collecting wines, getting really serious and felt like I needed, I needed, I wanted to get into the biz. And so I applied to a number of different wine stores in New York and it was hired at Crush. Were they, weren't they relatively new then? Brand new. Yeah. So I think they opened in March of 05 and I started working there June, something like this, right? And from the opening, because if you go in there now, they're pretty committed to mm -hmm. some, you know, interesting wines yeah. and depth and all of that. Was that the case at the beginning or you guys in there and there were a bunch of you got them? Yeah, no, from the beginning. That was a vision? Yeah, from the beginning, it wasn't my vision, but from the beginning, it was a kind of eclectic, eclectic mix of kind of what we now call kind of geeky eccentric wines and like high-end collectible. And that was the initial wine buyer there. That was his palate and his insight. And, you know, so from the beginning, it was, it kind of was that. So Crush is a wine store that still exists in New York City yeah. in the uh, mid-high 50s yeah, on exactly. the east side. Yeah. And it's considered, you know, one of the better wine stores. So you're there. It's funny, whoever's there early on influences, you know, what's going to be there, where their strengths yeah. or specialties yeah. become. Um, so you kind of stay there for a while, grow through the ranks. Yep. Walk me through that. Yeah, so basically, I was doing at the time, you know, I studied art history, and art history was, it's a lot of essay writing, right? It's a lot of communication. It's a lot of formulating thoughts and, and kind of reducing them or distilling them into concrete ideas, right? Chunks. And so that was the time that the Parker narrative, so in other words, he's, you know, like 100 point. This was a time where email marketing was essentially Robert Parker, 98 points, 1999, right? And a shelf talker. And a shelf talker, three words that usually involved like jammy, right? <laughs> But most important, it, it, it had the points and it had the price. So it basically it all boiled, whether you had a sexy picture or not or a graph, it all boiled down to 1999, 97 points or whatever your calculus was, right? 99 points, 24.99, whatever it is. And so Crush, and again, I'm not taking ownership. I was one of a team, but you know, our insight, and not even our insight, our passion was just to be like, dude, this, that's, it's just, it's not interesting. A lot of these wines we didn't really like. And it's looking back now, it feels very prescient, but at the time, you know, going heavy in Burgundy and Germany and Austria and Northern Rhone and the Loire Valley and a lot of places that now are very staked out and established, it was a little bit more risky, right? We were certainly losing some money to the people doing like the Molly Dukers, if you remember those wines. People right? would walk in and look for that. Yeah, they'd and want that stuff and we didn't have it. Did we Wine had... Spectator have sway on what people would... Not as much as Parker? Eh, I mean, I think they were all part of the voice. I don't, yeah. I don't think they were that much different in terms of what they were really celebrating, right? And so Crush's Insight and a number of other uh, 
very good retailers, Chamber Street as well, like another one still exists. They were the ones searching for the stories, right? And selling Crush, we made a we made a point never to mention points. Even if we were selling a high right. rated point, it was just like, dude, that's not important. What's important is the winemaker, the region he's coming from. And so we did pretty elaborate emails. I mean, the production value and the time spent on these emails in the long run worked, but at first it was I remember writing an email on Emidio Pepe. You know those ones? Oh sure. It was called, and I still remember, it was one of the first emails They were I probably did. much cheaper oh, then. Oh, man, yeah. It was like, the, you know, you get ones from the 70s and 80s that were, crazy. I don't know, 60 bucks, 70 bucks. <laughs> but I remember working on this email, and we had a whole thing of like, where is, where is the region and the grapes and how they do this? We had sidebars, pictures. I still remember the title was Ballerina and Boxing Gloves. And I spent probably like two days of work on this email. Really? When, you know, content breaking it down, looking at pictures, going through massive edits, how do we do this, blah, blah, blah. And I think we sold like eight bottles, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but, you know, three years later, it was going well. So that was the break of doing, of telling a story, right? Of not using points, of using the more complicated, more complicated narrative, really going into the details. And, and now, again, it seems kind of like, it seems obvious, but at the time, it was, it was a little bit of a leap of faith. Did most people come in looking for a story and a recommendation or a good deal of them had something in mind. Some could be swayed. But like you said, the parkerization, you didn't have it, they walked out. I mean, how did, how did that go at the very beginning? At the very beginning, that was, it was something we had to deal with, for, for sure. And, you know, compromises were made. I mean, there were certain big brands that we would have just because, you know, you have 10 people a day walk in and want, want one wine, like, after a while. And it was less dogmatic. It was honestly more as as I think most great things are, it was driven by what you really care about. You know, it's like everyone can say, man, I have this great idea for a company that does this. But if you don't want to spend your like morning, afternoon and night thinking about this, it's not going to happen. You have to do something you you actually give a shit about. Right. So we would, it was less dogmatic. Like we didn't want to make money and selling these easy brands to sell. It was more, man, like what really keeps you going are these kind of geekier things. And it was just, again, it was good timing. It was the market was changing yeah. and it was viable. And we were ahead of the curve along with, you know, others as well, but we were along the curve. So to your question, would people, yeah, people walk in and, you know, 10% of them would be like, I want wine X. We don't have wine X. But try this going on for 78 yeah. bucks. Well, that's a little pricey, yeah. and I don't know it. But people you wish were, you bought ten of them. <laughs> yeah, people were ready for a change, and, and at the time, wines weren't—they weren't that expensive, right? So you right. could you could sell people on Cloroche Blanche, or you could sell people on a lot of the Dresner book, a lot of the great, the great Loire producers, frankly, the great Beaujolais producers, who now are still cheap, right? Right, good values. Yeah, and you could sell people on Briords and on. Uh, so you spend how many years? So I was there crush. about nine years, eight nine years, and. A, a bunch of questions. One, you know, towards the end, what were you doing? Two, during the the journey, you know, where'd this love for, you know, these Teutonic, these Rieslings and German wines? And I know you were interested in other yeah. areas. Um, and then the transition out of there, you know, walk me through all that. Yeah, so beginning, uh, you know, I think my first official, like, full-time. So basically, I remember going in there. I'm going to like step one step back because it's fairly entertaining. I remember walking in there and, you know, it's like I knew I, I, I knew wine well enough, right? I had a good base level. So I walk in, I'd done a number of interviews and, you know, kind of had to talk a lot about wine. It's like, great, great. So I walk in, I think I'm a salesperson and I'm working two days a week, I think. And I walk in 
and he's like, oh, how you doing? Great, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then sort of like, all right, you know, head on into the stock room and you have a, there's a bunch of cardboard to break down. And I'm like, whoa. And, you know, I don't know, I'm in my late, I think I was 28 or 29 at the time. And I'm like, and I just, I either just got married or was engaged. You know, like, I'm, I'm a man, Sam, you know what I mean? I ain't cutting boxes. Yeah, down. and I call my wife and I go, at the same time I study art history and have no ego. So, you know, it's like, whatever, <laughs> man. I had no money, no ego, it's all good. But I remember calling my fiance and just going, I think I'm a stock boy. <laughs> and she goes, that's okay, sweetie, that's okay. Do you have one of those cards? <laughs> yeah, for sure, man, of course. So anyway, so I start off as salesperson slash stock boy. Uh, my first title was director, director of marketing. Basically, like I wrote the emails, right? That was... Um, Is that because you were the most literary and literate guy or just... Yeah, I think, default? yeah. I could bloviate the most. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, I could, I could string sentences together. So that's what I did, as well as sales. So I did a lot of sales and it was, you know, that was the time when there weren't every email people got who were in the wine world, right? It was again ninety-eight points, nineteen ninety-nine. So to get emails, it was like we're you know we're pushing weird stuff, and we certainly would do we do bigger brands, we do the wines you know, but we would also do a lot of weird stuff, including German Austrian wines, Swiss wines, war wines were not that well known, right? Uh, so there was a whole diversity, and then from there, you know, became wine buyer with uh, the wine buyer who's still currently there. So it was a partnership, you know, all in, honestly, it was always kind of a partnership. There were always like two to three to four key people doing stuff. Um, I was one of them. And then my last title was wine director. Okay. So that meant, and this was a big issue. So it was going from being involved in wine day to day as buyer, you know, author, writer, seller to, you know, the wine director is, it's basically general manager, right? A it's a little more... Yeah, you're, you know, you're running. Global yeah, and, you're running the store. There's HR. There's a lot of non-wine right. things to deal with. And at that point, my interests, German and Austria, was a huge, huge interest of mine. Just because um, you had the exposure. I don't know. They had the inventory. You liked it. I mean, why does that break through? You know, one of my first like wine epiphanies was kind of German Austrian wines. It just has always been a passion. I like acidity. I like cool climate. Germany, Germany specifically, and the Mosul even more specifically, have a direct connection to land and to history, right? It's very much Burgundian, so it's a monastic culture that very much detailed the vineyard sites and everything else over hundreds of years. So there's just like a lot. For a geek who wants to read books, there's a lot of raw material out there, and I like the wines. So it seemed like a natural fit. I also like the underdog, you know what I mean? It's... In terms of starting like a you know an import company, it's like man, the world needs another like French importer, like it needs a hole in its head. Right. And there's a there's a real dynamism in Germany right now, in Austria as well, in a lot of these countries, right? And in, in, as you go further east, in Hungary and um, Slovakia and a lot of these places, and like they need champions, you yeah. know. It's like these other places don't. So I felt like with my father's my cultural connection there, I speak German, you know, fairly well. Um, I'd studied the culture there. I still have my father's entire family still lives in Vienna. I still have a decent amount of family in Germany. It just felt like this is probably the battle I should I should choose. And some of it, I'm not a religious man, but like some of it was spiritual. You know, it's like right. I'd gone to Germany a number of times and and I've been to a lot of wine regions, but there is something about walking through the Mosul where I'm just like, you know what I mean? It's like there's a buzzing, everything works. You're like, this is, I'm probably meant to be here. So you're at the store nine years and you're starting to talk about that transition yeah. into why and how you became an importer. You know, tell me. So here's your love for German wines. There's a connection that's very deep emotionally, yeah. all of that stuff. 
how do you get from working in retail to really going out yeah. on a limb and start an importation company? Yeah, I was lucky. So there was a, you know, so to set the context here, right? German wine, if people know it at all, they think of the the kind of 70s Leapfrau Mill, Blue Nun, right? All that shit that's like mass-produced. Not even yeah. Riesling. Yeah. It's all, you know, sweet, mass-production, commercial. It's a stable consumer product, but it's not necessarily like an agricultural product. It's not necessarily a product that's reflective of the deeper culture there. And it's also... Germany, you know, is... It's one small part of a really wide and diverse wine culture. And the Germans are very good at, you know, focusing on what works and learning to, to kind of to mechanize it and to increase it, right? So they sweet wines were they were sweet wines of the seventies, you know, the Leapfrau milk was the natural wine of the seventies, meaning it was the hip thing to do. Everyone wanted it. It was the cool wine. I talked to a number of importers it's crazy. who were starting in the sixties and seventies and were like, dude, you had to have German wine was like the Eight dollar Montepulciano, man. You had to have that. That's what. That's what kept you. Like that's what kept the lights on. Where you're trying to sell hard shit like Burgundy, right? right. And Piedmont, right? right? You had the German wine, pay the bills, keep the lights on. That was your bread and butter. And then you could like dabble in hard to sell shit like Northern Rhone and Burgundy and Loire, right? But here's what I don't get: it, it disappeared. Yeah, I mean, fashions do, right? Anything that. But I mean, cold. Oh yeah. You know, nobody. It's you know what happened? It's one of these things. It's. The the quicker and the more dominant a force is, the quicker it goes down, right? Anything that rises, anything that shoots straight up, falls right to the ground. Yes. And it was a fa- it was a stylish thing within German wine, within the like the deeper historic context of German wine. Sweet wines are a part of it, but they were always a rarity. They're not easy necessarily to make, and they're they're more subtle wines. And so in the sixties and seventies, though, you know, it was a convergence of technology and everything else that they could all of a sudden produce mass quantities of these wines. So that has to be one of the reasons for the misconceptions oh. people have about, you know, German wine. I mean, Liebfrommulsch is not Riesling, yeah. but Riesling is prominent. So they're like, I, I don't like that. Yeah, so, 100%. Yeah. You, you know, so you kind of push people out of that. So go back. So you're leaving the store, right. and I, I, so I, I was trying. Yeah, I was trying to set the con- timing and yeah, opportunity exactly. yeah. for you to transition. Yeah. Right. I was trying to set the context of wine just because that was the German wine, right? That's what right. everyone knew, and that's one small part. And there's a huge, a huge diversity of grapes, of styles, of regions, of everything, right? And there was a small import company called Mosel Wine Merchant that had been started roughly the same time I was at Crush. So let's say you know. 06, 07, something like that. And they were bringing in really small production German wines, focusing a little bit more on dry styles. And it was, I don't want to overplay it, but I don't want to over, it was not exactly a revelation because I knew some of these producers, I tasted some of the wines, but it was really the first time that there was someone intelligent in the market talking about these wines and trying to sell them. And we were huge supporters. Crush, Chamber Street, a number of other places. Really, and it was a really, really small boutique import company. That had a, a a good business, a good arc, but it you know it was it was a smaller company, and then finally the people kind of running it decided like that was for a number of reasons. I think the business was fine. It was more just they wanted to do other things, and so it kind of stopped. And so a number of the producers that I'd been supporting through this import company all of a sudden didn't have representation, and it was really about a time where I I never thought necessarily about importing wine. That you know it's like a 
I didn't wake up one day and was like, I want to import wine. I had, right. no, I had no idea like how it works. I frankly still don't. Uh, but what I did know is that I wanted logistics. To, uh, yeah, it's logistics, man. It's just like you know, moving containers and that shit. Yeah. Oh man, it tires my brain. Uh, but I did know I wanted to be close to the growers. I'd done by this point a number of trips to Europe and a number of trips to wine regions, and like to me, walking through the vineyards and meeting like they are the rock stars. They're the they're you, the people. You didn't want them to be unrepresented or left behind, yeah, right? Yeah, they're. It's just a really, you know, who knows why? You know, I could try and ascribe poetry to it, but you meet people, and you, I just knew I wanted to be close to the growers. And, you know, other people, and this is not judgmental at all, but other people in the business, you know, like the service element, right? They like There's adrenaline in that. Other people like, in the retail game, you know, making the big sales and bringing, you know, these rare tranches. Like, and all, I like all those things, but to me, being near the growers was a really, like, got me going. And so when the small import company decided to give up, I knew a lot of the producers. I literally happened to already have a trip booked. This like sounds too good to be true, but it's absolutely the truth. The like the week that the person told me the company was was closing, I was going to Germany in a few days. So you connected with the portfolio. So, and, you know, initially initially it really was like I want to keep you guys in the US market. I know a bunch of people, I know a bunch of psalms, I know other retailers, like let's just keep this going. And naive maybe in the sense that like I don't want these guys, just these people not to be in the market anymore. And sure enough, I go there, I talk with them. Everyone's like, great. And I'm like, listen, on the, on the positive side, I think I know your wines probably better than anyone else does. I was your biggest customer by country mile. And they all know this on the downside. Like I haven't, an, I have no idea actually how to import wine. The business part. Yeah. Nor do I actually have a company or anything, but did, did you, did you reveal that to these guys? Oh, yeah, or you they kept knew. it aside. Yeah. No, they knew I was at Crush. You know, they knew me as Steven. No, from- but but did, did you reveal like, okay, you, you know, I'm willing to represent you. You know, stepping from Mosul, but honestly, I don't know how to get the wine out of here. And oh yeah, you for told sure. them all yeah, of that. Absolutely. They weren't like, so why would I go with you? Or they were like, we'll figure it out. Yeah, some were, some were. Okay, <laughs> for sure. You know, honestly, it was. This is the naive part, right? So I go there just thinking, like, not that I'm the savior by any means, but like that I'm going to give them an opportunity they're not going to have because otherwise, like, no one cares about German wine. And sure enough, like, some pretty serious people end up showing. So all of a sudden, I'm talking to growers, and they're like, yeah, that's interesting. You know, I'm giving my whole spiel. Like, listen, man, I know the wines. I love the wines. I want to sell them. They're like, okay, well, we have a meeting tomorrow with Louis Dresner. And (laughs) and it's like, wait, who? You know? Oh, boy. It's like, all right, well, I'll just uh, take stage door left here and just exit now. Stay so, in touch. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So thank you for the opportunity right. and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so at the end of the day, I did okay. You know, a, num- a few producers went with Louis Dresner. There was a few other importers there that, you know, picked up some growers as well. Um, but I started with Lauer, Stein, and Weiser Kunstler were the first three. Wait, slow down sure, on sure. that. So there were four there producers. There were four producers. That, that said, yes. Are emotional because they were your first four. Exactly right. They were good. Yeah. They're still with you. Yeah. They're still great. Let's go over them again. Yeah. So it was, I should probably say it was five. Five? So it was Lauer. L-A-U-E-R. L-A-U-E-R. So this is a producer in the Czar in the Mosul. Okay. uh, Who now has become a really, a fairly, you know, I work in such, you know, it should be said just again for for the wider audience. I work in a small niche of a small niche. So when I talk about like famous producers, I'm talking about, you know, Five to ten to twenty degrees left of center, right? right. This is in my little my little world. Um, but Lauer's become a very important producer. I think it's established in Germany at large. Um, Stein, 
who is a, a more eclectic, eccentric right. kind of bohemian producer, but v- you know, in major markets, really well respected. I should say my, I'll go through and then I'll give my spiel. Um, Weiser Kunstler, who's a incredibly respected, truly one of the great producers of the Mosul. Um, they farm uh, four hectares, so you know it's like I get That's zero, it? I get zero wine from them Jesus. a year. I mean, a lot of these, you know, the logistics when you really talk about numbers. I will show people my allocation sometimes, and it's you know I'm I know for a number of my producers I'm their biggest buyer, but for Weiser Kunstler, I think this in this year was a tough year because of the vintage, but I think I got 20 cases of one of their cabinets for the United States of America, right? So it's I don't know that's you know that's 10 cases for New York and two cases each for five other states. Spread I mean it's it yeah it's not that's these crazy. are these are insane amounts of wine, insanely small amounts of wine, right? The logis- this is why people in general don't do what I'm doing. Because it is right. like borderline inane, you know? One case is like 100 cases. It's the yeah, same work. exactly right. Yeah, you're yeah. doing all the admin, all the compliance, all the same to move 10,000 cases versus five cases, right? So it doesn't make sense except that I think the product is slightly better. I think people connect more with right. that ideology, right? That In all the crap. Totally. In all the shit that's so going on Lowry, right now. you got Lowry, you got Stein. I got Stein, Weiser Kunstler, and then this young producer, Julian Hart. H a a r t. H a a r t. There's right. a lot of hearts in in the Mosul. J u l i a. Yeah, Julian. Yeah. Okay. Um, so really small producer who's kind of his. It was his first vintage when I was starting. 2011 was just the first that he kind of made on a commercial scale, at least. And then this other guy Keller, who's a really big name in German wine. Do you know Klaus Peter Keller? Yeah, Keller. So he makes you know he was one of the one of the first to really focus on making dry wines and has become very much a cult figure. You know, yeah. Just to put it in context, his top dry wines at this point sell for, you know, thousand, two thousand bucks a bottle. So and he was a he was someone I met years and years and years and years ago, kind of before he was a rock star, just being really interested in German wine. And and he we you know, we became very, very good friends. So when I started my company, he said, listen, I have import I have importers from most states, but any state I'm not working in, you can work in. So I started with him. So those were kind of the initial five. Pretty, uh, pretty lucky. Yeah, for sure. That, you know, <laughs> those were the guys available. Yeah. Stephen, we have to take a break. Um, it's a good time to cut out. When we come back, let's talk about the wines specifically. Yeah. We'll talk, you know, more about some of the producers. I want to talk about varietals and a bunch of other things. And I want to talk about... Um, Riesling Fire, which is really yeah. a celebration of all these guys, yep. how you bring them to the public. We're talking to Stephen Bitterhoff. Stephen is the uh, creator of Riesling Fire, which is a big uh, uh, Riesling fair coming up in New York. We're talking about his import company, Bomboden, and we'll talk about it a little more. You're listening to The Grape Nation. We'll be back in a minute or so. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, 
Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and their rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Stephen Bitteroff. Stephen is the uh, proprietor of Von Bowden and the creator of Riesling Fire, which we'll all get into. Um, we got an idea of how Stephen got the business started, and he's being a little humble because some of the winemakers that he talked about are truly cult figures and rock stars now, um, which is interesting because when you started Von Bowden, and I think you laid it out a little, I think you have had a mission, a philosophy. You know, I think it's to be small, your aspirations or not. You know, no. tell me about that. What's the philosophy of the company? Yeah, for sure. That's critical. So, you know, as let me just go straight to, yeah, the, the question is, is the one ideology that I have and I believe deeply in is small scale. You know, we can talk within the wine world and frankly, you know, it's very easy to jump from wine to just agriculture, right? So to food and frankly to consumerism and to the, the world at large. But I do feel like scale is the most important thing, right? So within wine specifically, we can talk about organic viticulture. We can talk about biodynamic viticulture. We can talk about sulfur, about filtration, about a million different topics, right? And we can have very informed and intelligent opinions about these things. But really, to me, what's most important is the scale of it, is, which is to say a person in a place making good judgments based on their relationship with the land, right? There's an old Mennonite saying, and I don't, have a, I don't know the exact saying, but the philosophy is basically like the Mennonites do not work with tractors with rubber tires because rubber tires allow you to drive further and to do more work. And it begins to skew the decisions being made. So if you're working on just a, a wheel with, a, with an iron wheel and you're driving on that, you have to go slower, you have to be more thoughtful, and it limits the amount of land you can farm. It limits the amount of produce you can make. It, it's, a limit, it's a natural limitation that they put on that believes it just, it's a more thoughtful and engaged. So those are the type of producers. Those are the type of producers. That are important, and yeah. based on what you said, you know, they're not jumping on a tractor and doing you know, 28 hectares. For, yeah, for they're sure. They're small yeah. producers that are very connected to the land. Yes. You forget it's an agricultural exactly product. Exactly right. Yeah. So that's who you... That is, and this goes across, you know, so the majority of the book is, the heart of the book is in Germany for sure. That said, I have producers in Austria and France and now a few domestic producers as well in the U.S. And that is the one correlating tie is that they are all small producers. And that is the philosophy for the producers. Exactly right. They all buy Exactly in. right. And it's not to say, too, that you can't make good wine on, and frankly, even great wine on a larger scale. I don't know that it's the relationship I think is best to have with the universe, nor oftentimes does it make the most interesting wines. You know, you know, again, we can get very meta on all this, but like, what do you really want in a bottle of wine? You want it to be delicious. That's important. But like, frankly, I'd rather have an okay wine from a good human being than an awesome wine from Satan. 
Yeah, just to make it well, make think, it blatant, huh? I, I think there is a movement towards that. I mean, you I and I so. are sitting yeah. in a studio in Roberta's, which is ground zero yeah. for an eye towards you know natural wines and all of that sustainability. Yeah. You know, a recognition to the grower and all of yep. that. So we're we're in a good place that way, and yep. I think that's you know important for what you're doing. I'm just curious when you got out of Germany a little, did people pursue you, you know, in the U.S. or France, or you thought, hey, what the hell, you know, I'm starting to figure this out, let me talk to this guy, that guy. Had the hmm, portfolio expand yeah. beyond? I don't even know that I can... I'm trying to think. So, what was the, I'm trying to think what the first producer outside of, uh, of Germany was. I believe it was a French producer, um, Migo, which is, is in Lorraine. And so, you know, a lot of this is, it's just life, right? My, it happens to be that my wife's family, a lot of them are from Alsace, from Strasbourg, really? right? <laughs> so when I'm in Trier, it's about, I don't know, you know, depending how quickly you drive and the routes you take, it's about two hours south from Trier to Strasbourg. And so I drive through the Lorraine and I'm interested in these regions, right? You, I mean, when you're driving through Europe, if you're curious, it's, it's easy to go to Bordeaux and it's easier to go to the Piedmont. It's easy to find these places that, you know, all signs point to, you've read a million books about them. They're on billboards, but like, Wine was a was a product and is a product that's produced in a million places by a million different people. Unbelievable. And the ones that are famous are famous be for reasons that may or may not have anything to do with the quality of the wine, right? They may be close to a river. That tends to be, historically speaking, the region the reason why places are famous. Like the reason that Bordeaux is a huge product historically is because it's really damn close to a big river. And right. It's the same with the Mosul, right? And Burg- Burgundy was in the shadows for a long time because it's harder to move. That's a bigger point. But the point is that there's a lot of little cultures, and some are celebrated and some are not, not necessarily based on the quality, but just based on you know historical factors that are in someone's control or not. So the Lorraine, to me, is wildly interesting. The Lorraine, for people who don't know, is kind of it's a large swath of France on the eastern side, kind of above Alsace, you know, basically heading, heading east from Paris, right? And it's this whole area... It just is was a huge viticultural area. There were two world wars that were fought basically in this area. Switched back from France to Germany multiple times. Uh, There's bad flocks were there as well as in lots of parts of France. But it had a lot of things that really knocked it down. And so there are not many acres under vine anymore. But it's also because of this. It's also one of like the cheaper areas to live. Right. It's one of the cheaper areas to make wine to buy vineyard sites in the. There's real terroir there. So I would drive through this area. Found I'm generally, a producer. Yeah, so I found a producer. It was recommended so by... So you, you, were, you were intrigued and interested in the area. Oh, for sure, yeah. Kind of yeah. hit the road and That's like, it. let me see if yeah. I can get one of these. There were, you, know, you know, when you really get into this business at the, at the level I'm at, it's not like I'm at a very sophisticated level, but like, you know, I spend a lot of my time talking with people, right? And Psalms tell me things. Uh, retailers tell me things. People travel a lot and they go, man, I was... At this place, and this wine was great. You should look into it. You know, and I kind of right, have a right. little flip book, and I keep this stuff in. A lot of good intel. Yeah, there. and so it's like, you know, I go visit them, and one out of 100 tend to be what people say they are, right? That's great. Um, let's talk about, like I said when we took the break, I mean, we could talk about this stuff for five hours. But let's talk about the grapes and the varietals, yeah. you know, that make these wines. You know, Germany has built a reputation on the greatness, really, of a single grape. Yeah, for sure. Um, what I want you to do is 
discuss other grapes. I mean, we talked yeah. about Riesling, a yeah, Riesling, yeah. and we know Germany's built around Riesling. Yeah. But I think we're an exciting point at an exciting point. Yeah. You know where other grapes and producers are starting to spend time um, with these grapes. Um, so let's talk about Germany beyond. Yeah. You know, Riesling. What what's happening? What's yeah. good? You know, what what's in your portfolio yeah, that sure. you feel is important? Yeah. Okay. So I would say, let's begin that discussion with saying, you know, in the great hierarchy of the wine world universe, right? Many people, and I'd probably be one of them, will say that you know, Riesling and Pinot Noir are at the apex. Whether they're the best, or you know, it's like these are these are questions that I'm not very interested in, to be perfectly honest, but they are close to the apex, right? These are very noble grapes with deep histories. They can age. They show they show sight very specifically. These are, these are among the gods of the grapes, right? That said, you know, diverse, you don't always want to listen to Beethoven, you know? Sometimes you want to just chill out and, you know, listen to... Uh, Zeppelin. To, yeah, a little Zeppelin or, you know, I don't know, the band down the street, right, that just right. has a good little tune. Um, and so there's, there's different places for all sorts of things. And Germany... You know, as with France, as with Italy, as with Spain, has a wildly diverse region, right? These are these are all little farming communities that kind of found their ways over centuries, and then you know, and then started, and then there was more travel, there's more communication, and they blended a little bit. I think the analogy to make the comparison to make that maybe is interesting is is Italy specifically, because Italy, I feel like, is one of those countries that just did an incredibly good job of maintaining diversity and celebrating diversity, right? For sure, there's Sangiovese and there's Barolo and there's there are the quote-unquote greats, but there are a trillion DOCs there, a trillion different little regions, a bazillion grapes, and they all kind of are celebrated. They all have their voice, and they're not necessarily equal, but they're all celebrated, right? You talk to people very, in, very into Italian wine and very educated about it, and man, there's you will talk about the great historic Barolos with the same gusto that you talk about a white wine from Liguria, right? It's like it's, these different right. places have a different, Sicily yeah, or... they have a different, a different vibe, a different flavor, a different geography. But they're all the diversity, the 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 like the the diversity of it is what makes it awesome, right? In right. Germany, as with France, a lot of the other places it is exactly the same way in terms of the diversity, but in terms of the way the culture has celebrated is wildly different, right? So Germany made this hierarchy around Riesling because. One, it is such a great grape, as I said earlier. But two, because it was incredibly successful, both historically. I was going to say, way back. Yeah, going you know, to the, the 18th, the end of the 19th kings were century. Riesling, yeah. like, over Bordeaux yeah. in uh, the old days. I mean, you know, when you go back to the old, and you can still find these in, you know, cities. There was, when I was traveling in New Orleans a few years ago, someone gave me a, a, a wine list from a restaurant in New Orleans from the 1890s. And it is a lot of Riesling. It's a lot of Riesling and it's Bordeaux and they're all priced about the same. Oftentimes the Riesling's more expensive, right? And Burgundy is pretty cheap comparatively speaking. But you know, yeah, in the eighteen nineties to the early twentieth century, German white wine was the most expensive wine on the face of the earth. Crazy. And then there are two world wars. There's a lot of nonsense. And then in the seventies it becomes fashionable again, right? So it has these spikes and then it has these valleys. And German, you know, it's always been about Riesling, but the truth of the matter is it's a really diverse it's a really, really so good So let's world. talk about some interesting grapes. You know, let's focus on what's seeing some growth, what's available, yeah. who's committing to it. All right. Let's, uh, all right. Let's see here. 
just to, just ask a question back to you. You mean like what I'm being successful with, or what's just kind of the market's interested in, or what I think is cool? Because these are all. I, I, I think <laughs> I think all of that. All right. You know. I, yeah. I, I, and what your growers yeah. are committing yeah. some of the land to. Yeah. You know that type of stuff. Yeah. Okay. So I would say uh, the Burgundian varietals, at least. You know, the varietals we associate with France and at large, right? So we're talking Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, uh, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris. These are all varietals that have been grown in Germany for centuries. So they are, you know, while we think of them naturally as more French, that is their homeland. And, and I'm not going to sit here and argue that, you know, the great, the greatest, greatest ones don't come from uh, France or not Germany. But... They have a long history in Germany. They have a long uh, relationship with various geographies there, and I think they're making some extraordinary wines and if, there. If you take something like Pinot Gris, it's not called Pinot Gris. Yeah, exactly. So Germany, you know, that's a different language. It's right. not. It's German. So they they tend to call these the Burgundian varietals. So Burgunder. So they use the word Burgunder. They use Burgunder, and then they put the colors there, right? So Grau is gray. Blanc, uh, Weiss is white, right? So it's uh, so Weiss, Weiss Burgunder is Pinot Blanc. Okay, Pinot um, Gris, uh, Grau Burgunder, and is Pinot Noir yeah, Pinot P- Noir? No, Pinot Noir is the late. You know, within Germany, for whatever reason, I don't know where this, where the origin of this is, but it's the late harvest Burgundy. So it's Spät, ah. which is late in German. So it's Spät Burgunder. So you have ah. Weiss Burgunder, Pinot Blanc, Grau Burgunder, Pinot Gris, and then Spät. Late Burgundy, which is Pinot Noir, and then you recently got a nice shout out from Eric Asimov hey, yeah, yeah, in the yeah. New York Times for God. a wine that we haven't even mentioned. Yeah, Silvaner. Silvaner. Man, that would I would you know my next one for sure would be Silvaner because Silvaner is again probably not at the top of the apex, right up there with Riesling. But man, it's like it's second lieutenant to Riesling. Silvaner is a profoundly noble grape, and by that you know. What does that mean? Noble grape refers to just a grape that one can express something unique about a place, meaning it tastes different if you plant it in various places, and two, that it can age and develop and change, right? And so Sylvaner does all that. Sylvaner planted in limestone versus Sylvaner planted in sandstone tastes completely different. It is a profound grape, and yeah, that was... So isn't that truly satisfying? When, you know, Asimov, who's a good guy, who, you know, the Times is very, you know, reputable. Yeah. He picks 20 wines. Oh, dude. You're one of them. Was it 12? Yeah. Well, there's two articles, right? Yeah, you're right. So there was an article about Sylvaner that came out in the fall. Right. And the whole premise of the article was, why doesn't anyone care about Sylvaner? Right. (laughs) And it was more rooted in Alsace, because there's a long tradition there as well. Uh, And they mentioned better, so this producer I work with. But it was, the whole thing was, Sylvaner is so incredible, why doesn't anyone drink Sylvaner? Which is, you know... Does that complicate things? Now... Now consumers or restaurants or wine stores want it. And, you know, we talked about how you're a small producer guy. Yeah, you know, I mean, these things, the wine world and the momentum of consumers and wine stores and restaurants is, you know, it's a big ship. So you turn the wheel a little bit and it's not like it turns on a dime, right? It's over time. So I'd be lying if I said, you know, one article... You know, honestly, unless the wine's under 20 bucks and widely available, I don't know that it steers it so quickly. Right. But it's incredibly important for the larger discussion and to have people thinking about it and saying, you know, Asimov is a is a 
great writer and a huge personality in the wine. So having him say that these are important, like that, that puts reputable and yeah, well that followed. Put, that puts so. thousands and but, but thousands it, of eyes, which is great. He's this also validating what you're championing, which yeah. is a nice thing. Yeah, no, like for sure. All right. Um, we have about 10, 11 minutes oh, left. man, come and on. We got to jam in a lot of things. So right. I want to move into three areas. One, it. I want to talk about Riesling Fire. Yeah. Two, I want to subject you to our wine list, which is five questions. All right. Um, and three, if we can, let's just pick one of the wines you brought in, right. taste okay. it, talk about yeah, it. Yeah, cool. And, you know, get about it. Get on it. Um, okay, so Riesling Fire. Explain to people what Riesling Fire is. Yes. And why you did it. Right, okay. So people have probably heard of Oktoberfest. Right. So Fest in German is like a party, and a fire, it's spelled F-E-I-E-R, fire, is a celebration. It's a little bit more of a formal term, right? So it's Riesling Fire, so we're not, you know, we're not lighting anything on fire. This is more a <laughs> celebration. So basically it was a way of, there's a number of events. Um, I founded it about seven years ago, so it's been some time. And back then, there were already a few events, La Palais probably being the most famous. That is, it's basically, it all comes back to a harvest celebration, right? When the harvest was brought in, everyone would get together, thank the gods, thank whoever you thank for these sorts of things, have the bounty of the harvest there, and bring out really nice bottles to share with the community, right? So it's two things. It's one, a celebration of the bounty, of the harvest of a year, you know, spent circling around the globe and celebrating what happens then. And two, of sharing, of bringing things that are really special to you and opening them with people who you understand will be, they will be special too. Um, and so this has been done in, in Burgundy really successfully. And I thought, you know what, man, I know Germany and Riesling is is and probably always will be a bit of a niche geek thing. But like, I know there are people who really care deeply about this. It's a little bit about like being a, I don't know, like a baseball card collector, right? It's like you're not going to run into that many people at a but you dinner got, party. You got that right, though. Yeah, they're like they're not that many people, but at the same time, when you meet someone, like they care, they care deeply, right? So there's two elements to the fire. Yeah, so the fire is basically a big celebration of German wine. There's two events. One is a grand tasting, what I call the grand tasting, which is in uh, New York City, January 19th. So it's a week from this Saturday at Craft Restaurant. And it is all the growers that are coming in. This year it is from Germany and Austria. There's about, I think, 12 or 11 growers from Germany and three from Austria. Uh, and they will be opening, each one will be opening three wines. So um, you're looking at up to 50 wines, 40, yeah, 50 like, wines. Yeah, around 40 so it's wines. Around it's a walk-around tasting. It's a walk-around tasting. Winemakers at the table. Exactly. Right? Some Great New York Psalms. Exactly. So there's New York Psalms there pouring. There's 14 winemakers. They're opening three bottles each. It's 35 bucks. And you get to taste with, you know, some real legends, including Egon Mueller, Keller is there. And then a lot of what, you know, it's always my mix is Blue Blood and New Blood. So it's like, you know, the established uh, guard. And then the young people who are doing cool stuff. So Julian Hart, who I spoke about earlier, is coming in. Uh, Ava Fricko, who's a young woman in the Rheingau, is making incredible wine. She'll be there. So it's a lot of like, it's a diverse group. It's neither, you know, the you're, old school aristocrats nor all the punk you're rockers. You're getting a collection in a room yeah, like that. It's to taste for, what'd you say, 35, 35 bucks? bucks. It's ridiculous. January, January 19th, so okay. a week from this Saturday. And then in the spirit of yeah. La Paule yeah, exactly. and the yeah. Harvest Festivals, you do a big dinner. Exactly right. So then that evening, so it's basically a one-day event, right? Right. So during the day, it's this, you know, 
tickets available now. I think the the two shifts still available, or something like one thirty to three thirty, or something There's like that. There's tickets available for the yep. walk around tasting. Yep. There's multiple shifts. Exactly but a right. Few yeah, are we still do, available. Exactly. Yeah. So and so if all people info- are interested. They exactly can move right. on that. Yep. And it's all rieslingfire.com. So riesling and then f e i e r dot com. Now, what about the dinner? So the dinner then that night is with all the growers as well. And this is you know this is ten people at a table. There's 14 growers, so 140 people total, and it's just everyone brings the greatest wines they have, and we crack So there's open. wine there, and people bring wine. So all the growers bring kind of rare right. wines from their cellars. And then the collectors and, and guests people, yeah, are encouraged, you know, it's no one checks you at the door, right. right? But it's encouraging, you know, it's all in the spirit of sharing, and honestly, a lot of, and this happens to me all the time, it's like you buy a really nice bottle of wine, but like, you don't want to open it on Tuesday by yourself, no. or someone who doesn't care, it's like, this is the opportunity to open those bottles that you know people, you want to share them with people who care, and in this room... Are there People a few tickets left there for that? There are a few tickets left for it's that It's at well. Reynard. It's at a wide exactly hotel. Right. Yep. Um, uh, so if you can make it to Brooklyn yep. that night, January 19th. Yep. Um, and you will taste German wines that you... The, uh, these guys uh, pull out serious. serious. Yeah. I've but, had a number of German producers, including Katarina Prune from the famous estate, J.G. Prune, Egon Mueller, Keller as well, who just said, I've never seen this much great German wine in Germany, let alone outside of Germany. So if you love... German wines, Riesling. Riesling Fire is really a, a well-curated collection by a guy who's very passionate about it. You could do the tasting. You could do the dinner. You could do both. Yeah. Rieslingfire.com. Exactly right. R-I-E-S-L-I-N-G-F-E-I-E-R.com. Yep. All right. So that's what is now Stephen's annual event. All right. Let's buzz through the wine list quickly. I got all five right. questions. Right. I ask all my guests this. Don't overthink these. All right. Don't overthink these. I got gotcha. you. All right. First question is what are you drinking now? You know, what's on your table? What are you? Is it for business, personal? Is it seasonal? I mean, it's wine, right? Yeah, but it's, give me a little. So, more. but I'm drinking the wines we have here, right? I'm drinking a lot of, I would say during the winter, it's, you know, it tends to be a little bit more light red. So I'm drinking some light. So you're moving because of the season to be, a little yeah, more red. A little bit. And, and you know, richer kind of whites. Give me one or two things that you're loving right now. So there's a producer coming in for Riesling Fire, Jochen Beurer. Spell uh, the last name. B-E-U-R-E-R. Okay. And he's in Swabia, which is a little bit further south near Stuttgart, most famous for Mercedes and uh, BMWs. So he makes all different. It's not just Riesling land. He does uh, Trollinger, which is Chiava in Italian. He does a lot of different Cabernets, Portuguese. Or there's all sorts of reds that are just like tangy, bright, and delicious. All right. So that's what you're drinking now. How about this wine list is the Riesling edition. All right. Okay. Gotcha. Everything relates gotcha. to Riesling. Favorite wine and food pairing. Do you have one or you don't think about it? Is there something you come back to? Uh, you know something what? so logical? Yeah, I would, I would say in general, and something probably counterintuitive for people who aren't knee deep in this stuff is dry riesling, which is incredibly high acid, really sharp cut with any kind of crudo, right? So whether it's like scallops, whether it's, <clears throat> excuse me, shrimp or um, even oysters, right? Anything that's a little crudo fat is a raw fish it that's to be a raw seasoned. Fish. Exactly right. It could yeah. have some citrus or oil in it because that fattiness, the acid cuts through it. And people, you know, it's always like riesling is good with. With spicy foods, it's like, well, dry Riesling is really so good with... So dry Riesling and a good fresh Oh, man, or even go- Muscadet, man, or, or Muscadet, um, oysters. Like crack right. open an oyster and okay. put the Muscadet away. So that's, dry that's the German answer to champagne and oysters or yeah, Muscadet exactly and right. oysters, yep. which is good. Dry Riesling and oysters. All right. Pass it on. You've been around town a lot. I don't want you to leave anyone out, be inclusive, oh, exclusive. Man. But in the context of 
German wines. Favorite or good wine restaurant and or bar that has good attention towards, you know, a German, Austrian oh. wine list? Killing me, Sam. I'm going to not say someone and be in trouble. Uh, I would say the, you know, to go old school, the old school French restaurants do it better than a lot, right? Danielle, Jean-Georges, these places are poor. Like Aldo Le, Somme, Yeah, Le Bernardin as well. Like, they know, right? The acid of Riesling works so well with Guys food. like Raj Vadi, they, they For sure. Know, all that stuff. So they're doing an incredibly good job. And then you move downtown and, you know, honestly, it's like, man, Roberta's right here. They do Roberta's. a decent amount, man. They, they know what they're doing, um, you know. Stella, Cafe Altro, those places are doing a lot. You know, they're and it's Germany fans. and Austria, for yeah. sure. Yeah, big, big. Yeah, so by saying them and, you know, not saying company or Racine, they're all they're doing all, a great job. Yeah, they're job. all doing a good job. So there's a lot of... For sure. There's a lot of good places for that. All right, you've you've drank enough wine. You've had to have something that is a favorite all time. And, and that doesn't mean necessarily the most expensive, right. the most rare... What's that wine that you had, you know, through your travels that moved you? Man, it's always hard to pick like one wine, right? Give me a right? couple then. Yeah, or let's give say. me the experience. Yeah. And what was the wine with it? Yeah, okay. You know what I would say? Let me give you a genre. Can I do that? Yeah. All right. My genre would be older cabinets, right? So, you know, for people who don't know, German Riesling is often organized along this hierarchy of sweetness. So you go from, from dryness cap- to sweetness. Exactly. So go through it. Yeah, so you know, you'll see trocken or dry, which means dry, fine herb or halb trocken means like slightly off dry. And then this is a newer hierarchy established in the early 70s, but cabinet is the first level. And cabinet, think of it as a style indicator, right? It just tells you kind of what the wine's going to be like. Usually it means it's going to be slightly off dry have a little residual sugar, but be light and have a lot of acidity. And these are wines historically that are thought of is good wines, but not they are. They're kind of little brother to the Spätlesers and Auslesers and the noble dessert wines, right? But Cabinet to me is like has all the best of the dry wine world, meaning lots of acidity, lots of vibrancy, energy, but a little bit of residual sugar that gives it complexity and layers. And these these Mama Jamas, man, you can age, right? So I, from one of my producers, JB Becker released a little bit of seventy five Cabinet to me, How and the wine, oh, the wine is like just lively. It's, and- energetic really? and angelic transparent it tastes like satin salt and lemon i mean it's just absolutely haunting another perennial favorite of mine is von schubert in the river valley who has cabinets from the 80s so shout out to raj vedia 88 number 67 that's a vintage 88 cast 67 right. it's just like a legendary bottle of wine all right good answers all right. see it wasn't that hard all right. all right i ask everyone this and if you could fit your stuff in Put it in if there's something else that makes sense. What's the best Riesling wines we could buy for around 15, 20 bucks that are accessible, reasonable, a little cool? Yeah. Retail. Retail in 15, 20 20 bucks. bucks. All right. Easy. I can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would say I'm going to... I'm going to start with Stein just because I think he's a really like interesting you producer. You get Stein for about 20 bucks? Yeah. His, okay. So he has two entry-level producers. So Stein is just S-T-E-I-N. It means rock right. in Germany. And what's interesting about Stein is he's farming these like forgotten lands in the Mosul. So he has really old vines. So for about, you know, one is called Blauschiefer Trocken, just means blue slate dry. And this is a wine that's made largely from 80 to 90-year-old ungrafted vines, everything hand done. Wow. Just like incredible viticulture, incredible winemaking. And the wine is 18 bucks, And for no reason other than no one knows where this region, like where his little part of the Mosul is. These are not famous vineyards. And, and German wine at large, right? It's, it's, it's silly. 
So give me one more. One more. Fifteen. Wait, that's yep. a that was a red. That's a white. That's, that's a dry white. riesling. Right. You said riesling. Yeah. I'm sorry. He's a. And then for for a Pinot Noir, there's a producer I work with called Shelter. That's in Baden. So we're about a half hour drive from Strasbourg, really close to Alsace, uh, and just make delightful Pinot Noirs in that a little bit more range? angelic. Yeah. There's one called Lovely Lily. It's the one critter wine I import. It has a picture of their dog who they love, and his name is Lily. Uh, and the wines, yeah, about 17, 18 bucks. And it's just a vibrant, beautiful Pinot Noir on Can Limestone. Can you find them at the better and obvious For sure. wine stores yes. in New York? Yeah, you'll find them. Yes, you'll find them. Or whatever. Yep. yep, yep. All right. We're going to wrap the show up. But as we're wrapping the show Let's up, I want you to pick one of the wines. Right, Let's yeah. talk about it. And bring your glass <laughs> on over here there, Sam. I'm getting up. All right. I don't care. So I'm pouring a Pinot Noir. I think, All right, so you know, in the context of a. Can we look at one, one bright part of a uh, Matt? Get of some climate of Pinot Noir. So give Maddie a little. I have a sense that in twenty years, German red wines will be as famous, if not eh, as famous as German. That's white what wines. I wanted to get to early. I mean, that reds are breaking through. It's so there's going to be some recognition to red for sure. Wine. So we're drinking a German Pinot. We're drinking Noir. a German Who's Pinot Noir. Vossenhaus is the name of the producer. Spell for me. W A S E N. So okay. Vossen, Vossen, you'd say I guess in English, and House is H A U S. And this is interesting, Sam, because this isn't Baden as well, really close to the French border, and there is a massive dialogue now, right? Where generation ago the the parents didn't talk if you were in france or you're in germany you didn't talk right the younger generation they travel back and forth constantly so these are two germans who have done a lot of work in burgundy one of them and frankly still works at de monti a famous um estate in burgundy and they make just a little bit of pinot noir and weisberg under in baden and it is like among the greatest now german reds this, i've had a long time i don't want to ask time. the wrong questions or don't. sound stupid but is this a typical or a good representation of German Pinot, or because of the area they're in, it's a little different. It is a good representation of what German Pinot could can be. Okay, I think it's so a that's kind of, a good thing. Yeah, because you you got your hands on what it should be. You're not happy. Yeah, yeah. What I think, it is. I think a big problem. Germany has been able to grow red grapes for a few decades. This is not a totally new thing, but they didn't quite know how to elevage them, how to age them, right? How to like mature them. And now, as I've said, there's a tremendous amount of dialogue. So both these guys were in Burgundy for a long time. These barrels are from Burgundy. So they got they got. So they the know chops. how to do it now. So there's a little more balance, a little more freshness there. But it's it's distinctly German. It's called Vulcan. It's referring to the soil type. So this is an area with a lot of volcanic soils, and that's pretty unique to to Baden. So let's just do the vitals. The color is a typical German Pinot. What, what yeah. is that? A garnet or yeah? Uh, you tell me. I don't know. I'm not a color. I'm not a color it's blind, like a, it's yeah. like a beautiful ruby. Yeah, it's a, it's a light. Let's say a light red, right? Yeah. Give me nose descriptors on this one. You know, with volcanic soils, typically you get wild aromatics, and wild just meaning effusive. There's a lot of them, and tend to get a little bit more spicy, right? There's Beautiful smoke. aromatics. Yeah. Though. Little smoke. Yeah, a little smoke, a little, spice, a little kind of game. There's all, like dried herbs. All um, integrated, though. For sure. Nice. All right, mouthfeel, Let's it's it. that typical sort of medium. I mean, again, typical... I think typically most German Pinot Noir is not that exciting, so I think these are atypical, but it's, it's, it's typical got, of the potential that can be there, right? It's got a, a nice uh, mouthfeel. It's, it's a little lighter or more delicate, but, yeah. you know, some structure to it, so they're doing a little bit of a whole cluster, so it has a little, you know, little grip to it, let's say. And the palate, does the uh, nose transfer to the palate, or tell me mm. some palate stuff? I just like making the noise. Palate is just 100% delicious. 
you know, it's that light angelic kind of red Pinot Noir fruit with so much just complexity. There's like herbs, there's dirt, there's rock, there's game, there's smoke, yeah, there's a, meat, right? There's like some yeah. like bloody meat there. That's an interesting wine. It almost mm. sounds like a northern Rhone. It does a little about. bit, yeah. That's the volcano. But uh, it's a nice wine. I mean, you won't be oh. disappointed. Tell me the wine again. So Vossenhaus. So they are, this what, is a, What's the vintage year? This is, ooh, that's a good question, 2016, I believe, yeah. Okay. Yeah, 2016, it's called Vulcan. V-U-L-K and just the referring volcanic. to the volcanic soils. Exactly right. right. I'm going to post everything on our social media. I'm going to post your wine list um, answers and I'll post, you know, the wines that we've been drinking. Um, before I leave here, let me get a snap. Stephen, I have to thank you. We're going to wrap things up. I just got to do a few notices and then I'm going to get you out of here. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Um, follow us on Instagram at S Ben Ruby and follow the hashtag The Grape Nation. Um, on Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. Um, also, subscribe to The Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Like I said, we're going to post Stephen's wine list and we're going to post the weekly wine sip, and I'll post. Uh, some of the other wines that we drank and certainly some of the other wines that uh, Stephen mentioned. A um, couple more things. Stephen, where could we find you on social media? On Von Boden? Yeah, exactly. So Von Boden is V-O-M-B-O-D-E-N. So it's Vom like from uh, Boden, which is Earth, so from the soil. Right. So that's Twitter and Instagram. Hey, Twitter and Instagram. I don't think I'm on Facebook. I'm not sure. Um, uh, you, you are. I am. There you, you go. Are. I, I <laughs> awesome. searched and I found. Oh, there we are. And let's go over one more time. Yes. If you want more info on Riesling Fire, yes. which is coming up in a few yeah, weeks, a week which is why Saturday. I asked yeah. you to come on. We're actually on vacation this week. Yeah. Our season starts next week, uh, but next week would have been too you. late. Yeah, so yeah, I yeah. talked Matt into coming in. Rad, thank you. So that we could do that. Yeah. So you still have a few tickets left for the dinner yep. and for the tasting yeah. so and let me make one heartfelt plea if i may sam go Just because for riesling fire so it is a week from the saturday and the gala dinner will be if you're into these wines will be an experience you won't forget it's you know it's 300 some bucks so it's not nothing but it's reasonable against all oh, those other lalas right but if you're not into that the grand tasting is just in the middle of the day at craft restaurant which is right in manhattan it's easy to get to it's 35 dollars, and you are going to be tasting with literally some of the greatest legends of, of german and austrian wine and you're going to taste nearly 40 wines and like come if you you know if you're active in the wine and food world at all or you're just kind of into it right interested in right. it you probably hear from people constantly like Riesling's great German wines are sure are coming around like come taste spend thirty five bucks and come see and like if you don't leave happy then I'm wrong I, I said it. it earlier it's an incredible value it's uh, an incredibly passionate and well curated list. And it's more than an entree into this. It's sort of hitting. Yeah, it's a little bit of a master you know, course for right, 35 bucks. Yeah, it's hitting the right spot. Um, so that's uh, RieslingFire.com, R-I-E-S-L-I-N-G-F-E-I-E-R. Um, and you can go to their website. On another note, I told my friend Daniel Jonas that I would talk about one of his Lala's, right. Daniel from La. Paulet has created La Tablie, a daytime tasting and an evening dinner celebrating the wines of the Rhone Valley, north and south, on Saturday, February 2nd in New York City. 
visit latablinewyorkcity.com for more info. So like Stephen was saying, you know, there's a lot of festivals going on. Yeah. There's a Barolo festival coming up. There's been champagne. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah, it's You know, fun, and huh? I'm glad you got your foot in the yeah. door and, you know, representing uh, Weasling. Um, I want to thank our guest, Stephen Bitteroff. Stephen is the creator of Riesling Fire. Uh, get online, get out there, try that. And he is the proprietor of Von Boden, which we talked about, curates and imports some uh, delicious German wines and other wines from around the country. I want to thank our engineer, Matt. Thank you for coming in. Thank you, Matt. Um, I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.